Hi, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. This week, I have the privilege of speaking with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie's work encompasses writing, speaking, teaching, mentoring, and activism. Also, she's currently running for city council. She's the New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to a popular TED Talk. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning memoir, Real American, loved by one of my daughters. And her third book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, which has been praised by many, including my other daughter, as an essential guide to growing up and as our household talks about all the time, adulting. I deeply respect and admire Julie, and it was a true treat to have this conversation with her. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at traumastewardship.com and through Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I have the privilege of being in conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie, welcome. Laura, thanks so much for having me. And I want to thank all your listeners for deciding to invest some time in what you and I have to say. Absolutely. I am so looking forward to this conversation. I'm glad. I want to know why. known about your work for years. Both of my daughters are super fans of your oh. writing. Oh. I am in the process of gifting your book to my younger daughter's friends who have just graduated. Um, I love it. And you and I have never met before, but I know we have very few degrees of separation and have some similarities in our life path. So I'm just so appreciative that you took this time to speak with me. I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks so much. And uh, I, I, you know, as, as a writer, when we get a chance to intersect with people for whom our words have made meaning or have made connection or have resonated, it's just the most joyful aspect of being an author. So thanks for mm. saying all you already said. Oh, absolutely. And I want to tell you, you know, you, I know you have been through the college application process and I've now been through it twice and it it's a, I my experience of it was a horrendous process and the podcast that you did it was years ago that you did the po- podcast pre covid and nevertheless I listened to every episode I said every episode to my friends and even though some of it wasn't relevant currently because of the pandemic it just there was so much in there that I found comforting and in my experience of the college application process there were very few things that were comforting. So it was so informative and it was also exceedingly comforting. So I also, I wanted to thank you for all your writing, but also for that. (laughs) You know, I'm so glad, Laura. Look, the folks at Slate produced that podcast. It was called Getting In and um, I was the host and I had such fun doing it. It was a new opportunity to learn and grow for me, which is something I hope to do until I draw my last Mm -hmm. breath. So I was loving the learning curve and really enjoying the format. And they didn't renew it after that one season. And I guess that meant it just wasn't selling the way they hoped it would. Mm. It wasn't getting enough eyeballs or downloads. And I was so bummed. But I got to tell you, I hear people talk about it still, just like you're telling me about it now. I literally, that thing was like maybe 2016. Mm -hmm. And here we are six years later. And I love that you found it informative and comforting. And I think that is on brand for me, if you will. I think mm-hmm. that's what I'm going for. Like, can I swear on this podcast? I oh, forgot to ask. yes. Like the <laughs> shit of life is what it is. And we're all going through it. And to be straight up, 
clear about what it is and what we're going through and what we want to know and what we're afraid of and what we're ashamed of, what we dream of. That's where the comfort is Mm -hmm. in knowing I'm not alone in asking these questions or in having these fears or in wanting these outcomes. You know, I'm not alone being in community with other humans going through the same shit or similar shit Mm -hmm. is just so important. Absolutely. Well, exactly what you're saying is one of the reasons we decided to actually do this podcast because we're trying to do anything we can through this medium to interrupt folks' isolation around feeling overwhelmed, going through trauma, navigating mental health, and both for adults and also as you and I shared in our email correspondence, um, you know, I think you and I are both deeply committed to trying to be of any support we possibly can for adolescents and young adults. And so with that, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're an educator on your website says you're also a human. Tell our listeners who aren't already super fans of you a little bit about your work as well as the arc of your work. I have found it really beautiful to watch that evolve over the years. So share anything you like with us about that. And then I want to get right into your wisdom for adults and particularly want to make sure we spend some time on adolescents and young adults. I love it. Thanks for the invitation to say something about my background. Uh, For those uh, of your listeners who aren't familiar with me, I would start with, um, you know, my mother likes to say I keep reinventing myself, but Mm. I keep telling her that, no, I'm just continually asking and answering the question, how can I be of greatest use to humans? Mm -hmm. So I've been a lawyer. I've been a university administrator. Now I write books and speak about them. And my why is I'm interested in all of us making it. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean that uh, as an aspect of, you know, being a savior messiah complex, like I want to save everybody. Mm. It's more my heart aches at the thought of humans being left by the side of the road as uh, our human community walks forward or, or makes its way forward. So I am interested in who's underserved, unseen, on the margins, not understood, misunderstood, blamed, you know, who is, who is not being brought along. That may sound very socialistic and that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I get to that place because I was born transgressive. I was mm-hmm. born not belonging. I was born problematic. I'm 54. I'm black and biracial. Uh, my mother's a white British woman. My father was an African-American man, dark skinned. Mm-hmm. And I learned very young in the early 1970s that something was wrong with daddy and something was probably wrong with me too. And I mm-hmm. learned that from strangers and I learned it from classmates and I learned it from teachers and so on. And mm-hmm. I think because there was no biracial, there was no multiracial. Right. Those no. terms didn't exist until the late 80s. And so I just, I couldn't even answer the question. What are you like? Nobody knew what I was and I didn't know, but I Mm -hmm. knew that half of what I was, was problematic in the Mm -hmm. eyes of many. And I think that gave me a lot of compassion for any human Mm -hmm. who, for whatever reason, having nothing to do with their own effort or intentions is regarded as problematic Mm -hmm. because I've been there right? and I, I ache for anyone in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so that's what I'm about. I'm rooting for all of us to make it, trying to do my small part to, help people remove the obstacles from their mm-hmm. path, whether in front of them or within them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where did your 
investment in focus on adolescence come in? I know you're a parent and I know you worked in a university, but can you say a little bit more about that? Because you have, I mean, your work offers so much across the board and the voice you have to speak with adolescents as well as their adults and guardians and parents and grandparents. It's really special, Julie. It's, it's, I I don't see many people who can talk to the adolescents, young adult scene as well as the adult scene and you do it beautifully. So where did that interest come from? Well, thank you so much. I've, I've not had, feedback quite like that. And it's praise and I appreciate it. Um, and it also makes me curious about why that might be. Um, um, look, I was an unhappy corporate lawyer. I had gone to law school to help people. Mm-hmm. I had, I had gone off track with my own intentions by going into the corporate law realm instead of public interest law, because I was mm-hmm. so insecure as a young woman of color. I needed mm-hmm. the applause and approval of mainstream white society. Sure. I know that now I didn't know that then. So I asked myself, you know, what, what work would be more rewarding than this? And, uh, I came to the conclusion that, you know what, I want to help young people make better choices than I've made for myself. Mm -hmm. So I think that was what pivoted me toward college students. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that from having been a college student that those years, roughly 18 to 22 or 17 to 23, depending, those years are so combustive. Yes. Are so generative, are so, uh, full of, of catalyst mm-hmm. and fear <laughs> and oh, it's just such a, an, a set of years of profound growth, mm-hmm. probably unparalleled except the years from, you know, zero to three, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the growth is just, whoa. Right. And so, um, and it's a time of awakening. It's a time of self-fashioning. It's a time of, they can't tell me what to do anymore. Can they, you know, mm-hmm. it's a time of claiming the self or at least mm-hmm. starting to. And so mm-hmm. I set my sights on working with, with adolescents. You're calling them adolescents. I would say, um, you know, my sweet spot has always been the, the undergraduate um, years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a Dean of, of freshmen at Stanford. And, and that was the group I got to focus on for 10 years, not just freshmen, anyone in college, but I got to know them when they were freshmen. Um, and I think it is just, you know, what those years represent. Um, I, I then, you know, when, when I became an author of that parenting book, by the way, I was never a parenting expert, still I'm not, but I was able to investigate a problem. Why are young people lacking agency and resilience? Why are they struggling with their mental health? Why don't they have the skills prior generations did at their age? Oh, because there's a method of parenting that is doing too much for kids and they're right. chronologically adult, but really underserved in terms of what they know or don't know. And uh, so I wrote this parenting book on the harm of overparenting, started giving talks to parents at at sort of an evening keynote level. Mm -hmm. But very often the schools that were inviting me would also have me do an assembly for their seniors or their upper school or their high school, Mm -hmm. um, occasionally the middle school. And I began to try to fashion a kid's version of the talk that I was trying to give parents. So the parents, it was like, here's how to get out of your kid's way right. with kids. It was, here's how to claim your own right mm-hmm. to decide what's right for you in this one wild and precious life. Mm-hmm. Quoting the late poet, Mary Oliver there. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. And so your turn, share with us a little bit. So your turn came out a bit ago. Now we have the paperback 
edition came out. And very excitingly, TED Talks is now doing educational series. So there's going to be a TED course on your turn. So tell us about that. And let's get into who that's for, as well as some of the content in there. Because again, this is something I'm looking forward to gifting to some of my kids' friends as well. I love it. Thanks for being such a fan. I really appreciate it, Laura. Um, your turn is, uh, is my compassionate beckoning to anyone who feels, I don't want to adult. I don't know how to adult. Adulting is scary. It's me saying, yep, I see you. Mm -hmm. I get it. I got you. Mm -hmm. Come here. Yes. Come here. It's all right. It's all right. Mm -hmm. I've got you. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what you're afraid of. Let's talk about what you're dreaming about. Not sure you can achieve. I'm here for all of it. That's kind of the voice of the book. It's not a critique of anybody. It's not a distant, like, Here's the advice, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like me sitting there shoulder to shoulder, caring deeply mm-hmm. about young people, about the reader, um, imagining them sitting with me, uh, mm-hmm. opening up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an enormous book because adulting is, you know, hopefully a series of decades in which we are hale and hearty and healthy and making our way. So this is not something you can compress into tips or into, you know, a short book. It's long. And mm-hmm. um, it's meant to be a companion uh, throughout life, frankly. I've heard from people well older than the intended audience. I know you didn't write this for me, but I got a ton out of it. And I'm not surprised because I frankly feel the book is a mirror that the reader looks into and they see themselves where they need to. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, it's I when I was reading it, I was thinking of my youngest daughter and I was thinking of my beloved brother-in-law, you know, like I was thinking, and so many of us in between. So I really hear you on that. And I think like you said, you write with so much humor and so much humility and very much like on the path alongside us. There's no lecturing in there. There's nothing like that. So Julie, my experience of parenting and through my work, I get to work with so many adolescents and young adults. And I, from where I sit right now, there's nobody in my life who's in that age range who is not quite or extremely overwhelmed. What are your thoughts around that? Why do you think that is you have been doing this work a long time. Share with us any insights you have into what all is contributing to that. You said there's no one in that age range who's not overwhelmed. And we're talking about adolescents and young adults, mm-hmm. age range you're defining. I mean, I'm talking about just in my orbit. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. No, and mine too. I have a lot of thoughts. Um I'm sure your listeners do too. So let me offer in no particular order of importance, some thoughts. Um, They were raised with active shooter drills in their elementary school classrooms. Mm -hmm. We have not had a generation prior to the current young adult generation and younger for whom that's true. And that's Mm got to fuck up a person. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. The notion that a shooter might, right. Columbine was the first big, Mm -hmm. uh, tragedy at a high school that was 1999 uh in the month or so around when my eldest was born Mm -hmm. and our kids have been shaped by that and changed by that you know the fear that as i'm doing this compulsory education the state requires of me right 
I might get shot. I mean, come on. Right. That has to have something to do with the degree of anxiety that they yes. feel. We are also experiencing um, the evidence of cataclysmic climate change on its way. Mm-hmm. And when the 80-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 40-year-olds like, oh, well, when the 80s and 60s are saying, thank God, I'm not going to live to see that. And they mm-hmm. dare say that in the presence mm-hmm. of someone in their teens or 20s. Mm-hmm. I, I want to smack them across the face right. and say, how dare you speak so cavalierly about an actual threat your grandchildren or great-grandchildren will face. You're like, stop it. That we all created. That we all created, right? So there's that. Uh, There's widening income inequality. The middle class seems to have fallen into a deep hole. We can't find it. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, America has unmet its promise of every generation will out-earn the last. Mm -hmm. The millennials were the first not to out-earn their parents. I mean, that's not their fault. Mm -hmm. It's not their fault that they can't afford an apartment in the town in which they grew up. It's not their fault. We mm-hmm. we created this society that we now expect them to inhabit according to the old rules. You know, my son works for the local school district. Mm-hmm. He's 23. as a job as an aide for kids with special needs. Mm-hmm. He has a pension. And my husband and I said to him, we want you to know how rare that is. Pensions used to be common, you know, in, in so many industries. Now it's really just government and the military. Right. That's going to offer a pension, which is a handshake of loyalty. You work right. for us for X period of years. At the end of, you know, when you retire, you're going to have guaranteed income from us. That doesn't exist anymore. But right. but grandparents are often harping on like, when I was your age, rah, rah, rah. like, mm-hmm. come on. Okay, grandpa. Okay, boomer. Right. Things have changed. So I'm just sharing yeah. a few. Th- I haven't even mentioned technology and social media. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's go there. Right. Now they have the internet in their pockets. And research shows that Instagram in particular is harmful for young girls and and young women, Mm -hmm. girls and young women in particular around body image, around, um, uh, you know, sort of dragging them down a rabbit hole where they can get reinforced messages about what's wrong with them or about how they should be instead of how they are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot. And then there was a pandemic, okay, which deprived us all from the juice of human interaction, which is the magic elixir that we have to continually drink in order to be well in life. Mm -hmm. The pandemic said, nope, you can't can't be around them in order Mm -hmm. to not infect each other and not die. We had to stay apart. And for young people, their job, as Dr. Lisa Damore likes to say, their job in their adolescent years is to hang around with each other. Mm -hmm. And pick up life skills along the way. Mm-hmm. And not hanging around with each other has harmed them. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of reasons why young people very validly mm-hmm. are in a pretty rough emotional state right now. Mm-hmm. And we all have to be compassionate about that, surround them with resources, listen, care, and events optimism that they will get through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Julie, let's get a little bit more into some details here in terms of strategies. It's one of the things that's really important to me with the podcast is being able to, you know, and what I so appreciate about Buddhism is being able to acknowledge the suffering, acknowledge the pain, and then make sure we have next steps about how to navigate all of that. So talk with us a little bit about either from your research from your turn or your previous work, your own lived experience, and then, you know, this TED course that you just developed, what are some of the go-to strategies that you put out there for your own kids, their friends, kids you work with? What are some of the things that you keep turning to as essentials? 
Um, so I'm laughing that you think my own kids listen to me. Um, like any parent, I need someone else to tell my kids sure. like, oh, this is valuable, right? right? So Laura, please send this podcast episode to my children. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's bifurcate. There's what I tell parents and what I tell young people mm-hmm. when they start with the young people. Um, there are a lot of dualities uh, present in your turn, uh, the new book. So one might be the self matters, but also others matter. So you gotta, you're responsible for yourself looking after yourself, which requires knowing the self, knowing its conditions and diseases and challenges and differences and mm-hmm. loving that self and accepting that self and being in charge of that self while also not being a narcissist, caring a lot about other humans, other humans needs matter and your ability to interact with other humans is really key to getting your own needs met and also just being a part of human society. So that's one duality. Mm -hmm. Another is money and meaning. Yeah, you need some money. You need money to pay bills. Depending on where you live, the bills are big, the bills are small, whatever. You've got to have a way of paying your food and rent and Netflix and so on. And meaning in your work matters. So don't you dare do a job that you're just in for the money. It will suck the life out of you. I know that from being an unhappy corporate lawyer well-paid, successful, mm-hmm. uh, being, you know, being mentored for better and bigger things and hating it. Right. And so you have to feel meaning in your work if at all possible. And so those are two things Like, don't mm-hmm. just go for the money. Um, and then work and relationships. A lot of young people are told, Oh, just focus on your work in your twenties. Your relationships will fall in line. That is bad advice. We're supposed to be practicing being in relationship, which starts as just kind interaction with strangers and then maybe it becomes friendship and collegial and then maybe becomes lovers, right? We're supposed to be practicing all of that in childhood, the kinds of human interactions where we don't get along and we have to learn how to listen and and communicate and cooperate and commiserate and compromise, right? But if parents have always smoothed out the wrinkles of your interpersonal relationships with peers or with teachers, you don't know how to do it when you're a young adult. You've been underserved. Um, So you got to work on your interpersonal relationships just as much as you're working on leveling up in the workplace, uh, which requires moving from total don't know what you're doing to one day total independence. And there's a number of steps in between. So there's a lot of this and that in Uh this book. Um, Uh For parents, the one piece of advice that I have is in supporting your young person, particularly around their mental health challenges, is um, empathize and empower. I've, mm-hmm. I've talked about how we're, you know, and or listen and don't try to fix. Mm-hmm. Listen and events optimism. So, wow, that sounds hard. I'm here for you. Let me know if you need me. But you know what? You do hard things. So I think you've got this. Mm-hmm. There's so much to modern parenting that is, oh, you can't handle this. I'll do it. Oh, that would be terrible. Let me make sure it never happens. Right? Mm-hmm. That's actually fomenting anxiety in kids because mm-hmm. it's like my parent is so afraid of what will happen to me if this thing happens, right? There's research out of out of Ellie Leibowitz's uh, lab at Yale that says to fix childhood anxiety, work on the parents, work mm-hmm. on helping parents draw better boundaries mm-hmm. and stop over accommodating. So it requires bravery and guts to be a parent who can actually move a little bit farther back instead of swoop in in these moments mm-hmm. of crisis. What we've got to do is show up with all the love but without throwing a cloak of love over them so that our kid can't even see to make their way out beyond us. Mm-hmm. We've got to be this strong, confident, loving presence to the side that's like, I love you. I can see this is hard. I believe in you. Smile. Leave the room. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than, oh, no, I'll handle it. I'll deal with it. You're, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. 
I can't remember from reading your book if you have a dog or not. Are you? No. Do you have a? Yeah, I don't. My husband's allergic to many things. We don't have dogs. Um, I some of the parenting advice I reflect back on all the time is we had a Rottweiler who we trained to be an animal assisted therapy dog, oh. and he helped me do my work in such a different way. And we got to train with this incredible woman, Christy Dudzik, who's like the queen of animal assisted therapy. And one of the things she always would say to me is everything travels down the leash, right? Like mm. all your anxiety, all your fear. Cause we had this wonderful Rottweiler and we were going into all sorts of trauma settings. And she just would say to me over and over, everything is going to travel down the leash. And there's so many parenting books I read, and yeah. that is one of the pieces that I tried to remember when I was raising my girls. I love that. That I love it. Training. I'm writing it down because <laughs> I, I love it. I, I already talk about when I'm trying to help parents see the problem in overmanaging. I say it's like we're entering our child into the Westminster dog show and going for best in class or best in breed or best in show right. where we're the trainer with the leash. We're telling them what to right? We don't realize that first of all, it's treating our child like a, an object that we yeah. act upon. And then it's the reflection of our worth. Like, look, I won the Westminster dog mm-hmm. show. Your child is not a dog, mm-hmm. a dog on a leash. And I love the notion of the anxiety, everything traveling down the leash. And here I am trying to, motivate and incentivize and encourage young adults to go off leash. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear from 23 year olds and 25 year olds, my parents won't let me. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about that. What is that verb even doing in this sentence? Mm -hmm. You are fully capable, assuming there aren't significant special needs where someone's controlling your life. You're off leash now. And it is a little terrifying, but it's also exhilarating, particularly when the leash has been yanking you this way and that or or sending its own anxiety down to you. Right. And Julie, I know that one of the things you and I share is some around our identity and certainly a lot of care around systematic oppression, structural supremacy, all the different ways that that unfolds. I know we share this care for the climate crisis and democracies dissolving and any number of things. When you are working with or caring for kids in your kitchen or in your practice, however that looks, and you have kids there who are really going through it in terms of how immobilized they may feel, how much they are navigating self-deprecation or self-hatred, when they are, as happens so frequently, I mean, throughout life, certainly in the 20s, I see a lot of kids comparing themselves um, in terms of what they're going to do, you know, in their early 20s or mid 20s. There's certainly all these increasing mental health concerns. So when you are with kids who are despairing or really feeling like they're in over their heads, can you share with us a little bit more about what guidance you give them? Um, so I, I'm not a therapist or a clinician. I don't have a practice where kids would come where I would know mm-hmm. just upon their arrival that they have an, a con, you know a serious uh, issue or they're despairing or they're in over their heads. So mm-hmm. I have to intuit that to start with. Um, I'm reminded of a gathering I had just the other week. There was some local, there was a local exchange program with kids from all over the country. 
meeting me at a local bookstore, talk about your turn and give them a signed copy and go on my way. And the way that I chose, so it was about nine people, young mm-hmm. people, all just graduated high school. And I'm really trying to, I know that I have about 49 seconds to develop credibility with young people. <laughs> and I respect that. They are tired, overworked, stressed out of their minds and dealing with a lot of emotional shit. So I want to earn their their ears. Mm-hmm. So I have to behave in a way that is respectful. So I try to sit and speak, you know, like with my hand, I'm not trying to be formal and distant. I'm trying to be mm-hmm. local and close. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I tell them why I wrote the book, a lot of compassion for young adults. You know, I, I sort of lay out what my why, tell a little bit about my own personal narrative all in 49 seconds, right? Like, <laughs> you know, I was that person who was not accepted for who she was. Mm-hmm. So now I'm deeply invested in each one of us getting to be who we are. Um, I try to speak their language. So though I'm Gen X, I'm going to start with my pronouns because I know that's important to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my way of signaling respect, you know, showing up with language that they um, need mm-hmm. and they, you know, so I'll, I'll open with my identity. And uh, then I just try to shut up. <laughs> I mean, I'll ask what, you know, I'll say things like no one has the right to tell you what to study or who to love. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here for any of that. I'm here for you to listen to the sound of your own voice to discern Mm -hmm. it from the cacophony, which is the noise in your head of what other people are saying you ought to do or should do or should not do or can't do. Mm -hmm. And that noise in your head is parents and extended family, your whole ethnic community, your peers, the media, they all got opinions about you, Mm -hmm. but I'm not here for that. I'm here for you. So when I ask you, what would you do if nobody else mattered? What would you do if no one else minded? What would you do if they loved you anyway? What would you do if you loved yourself enough not to care what they think? Right. And I'm saying all this and I'm looking into their eyes and I'm scanning the eyes in a room. It's easier with a small group or Mm one-on-one. You know, I am trying to be a mirror that allows them to simply see themselves more clearly because that's how they're going to get out of whatever hole they're in, Mm -hmm. giving themselves permission to see themselves, see and be seen, to feel the things they want to feel, right? I'm trying to, to demonstrate with my body language and actual language and eye contact, you fucking matter. Mm-hmm. You matter. Not what they want you to be. Not you when you get an A+. Mm-hmm. You right here, right now, always matter. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm here for. And if I do a good job at that, they believe me. You know, if I have demonstrated you can trust me, then they open up, mm-hmm. you know? So these nine kids went from, oh God, here we are listening to this lady to like leaning forward, opening up in front of each other. How do I talk to my parents about this? You know, can I take a selfie with you? And one guy said to me, I was in tears three times when you were speaking. And I said, you know what? I didn't see the tears, but I saw your eyes dart away and I wasn't sure what was going on for you. And so I'm glad you're sharing, you know, Mm -hmm. I said, and then I would say, do you want to say more about that? I'm not here Mm -hmm. to push, Mm -hmm. right? I'm here to create and hold space. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to create and hold space for humans to step into it and fully do a 360 for themselves, self-examination, self-reflection, self-acceptance. I'm just trying to hold space for all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's hard in a book. It's easier in a group. It's right. easier when you're with them. But the book is my effort to provide to scale it up, right? I can't yes. be with, right? So it's like in this book, I've tried to write your turn in a way that makes you feel like, my God, she totally gets me. Or mm-hmm. how did she know I was going through that? Or, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
I really appreciate that. And Julie, you know, I've listened to your podcast, the one you had done on college and read your work and you and I have never gotten to spend time together personally or anything. I'm imagining you're far less neurotic than I am in so many ways. And also as a parent in any way that you don't on any day, just feel a sense of peace and equanimity. How do you navigate for yourself as a parent when you feel concern either about what might be going on in your own baby's lives or just their generation and their peers? How do you tend to that? How do you care for that? What do you do with, should you have any noise in your head? Uh, what do you do with that noise in your head? And what do you do with what weighs really heavy on your heart? <laughs> so what I need you and your listeners to know is, yeah, I'm a mom. I have a son who just turned 23, a baby girl who by the time this airs, like, cause you know, a couple weeks from now will be 21. Mm. And I thought I had all the answers about overparenting, the harm of it, because I was a dean working with other people's young adults. Mm -hmm. Came home one day after preaching, don't overparent for seven years. My son was 10. And I came home for dinner and leaned over his plate and began cutting his meat. And I was <laughs> like, ah, oh, fuck. I'm doing it. I am doing the equivalent for him now of what I'm criticizing at the college level, the cutting mm -hmm. of the meat of somebody mm -hmm. who, barring special needs, ought to be able to cut their own food. So mm -hmm. I realized to my great horror that mm -hmm. I was complicit. I was a practitioner of the problem I was trying to solve. And it gave me a whole lot more compassion. I was able to then soften my critique and really speak from this, okay, look what we're doing. We're overparenting, and guess what? I'm the worst offender. Mm -hmm. And I'm still working on repatterning, which is what I call it, with my own. And a repatterning has included family therapy, mm -hmm. um, particularly with my son, who's pro as the oldest, you know, kind of got the newbie parents who, who yeah. we learned a lot by the time, the, you know, we were parenting the second one a little bit differently. We've been repatterning. I'm willing to examine my own shit. I'm willing mm -hmm. to examine why am I so anxious such that I have to micromanage every moment. That's my mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. I'm that parent who has to like nail it down to the 100th detail mm -hmm. instead of like, hey, we're putting on a uh, thing this afternoon. Can y'all help get the house ready, get the food ready? You know, mm -hmm. I've got to like, oh, do it this way, do it that way. Have you done this? I'm I'm a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and I've, I'm a micromanager. I'm not, you know, I'm getting better, but I have micromanagement tendencies at work too, which I know I'm old enough to know that's rooted in my own insecurities about mm -hmm. not being good enough, therefore having to perfect every single moment all the time, whether I'm doing the work or someone working for me is doing the work. So I'm owning my own shit is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Owning my own shit allows me to be the parent who can show up in my kids' lives and say, you know what? I'm sorry I snapped just now. I'm really anxious about this. Can't quite tell you why, although I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. But please know it's not you, it's me. Mm -hmm. When I'm gracious with my kids, when I ask for forgiveness, um, not so much so that I'm basically treating them like my therapist, but just more like, hey, I'm just trying to, I'm a work in progress. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm older. Yes, I'm your parent. I don't always get it right. I want to own that. They show up with profound graciousness back. They're mm -hmm. like, it's okay, mom, got you, you know, love you. And then they're, you know, we're all rooting for each other then to just right. continue to grow, continue to have open and clear communication that is rooted in our values of, mm -hmm. you know, trying to be kind, trying to be good, trying to be patient, trying to listen mm -hmm. with my daughter. I'm a fixer. 
Mm-hmm. Always, she's got a problem. I'm going to tell her how to solve it. Mm-hmm. And I have finally learned, shut up. <laughs> Say to her, oh, that sounds so awful. Oh my gosh, are you all right, right? Instead of you should do this, how about this? Have you thought it? it don't say that. Instead mm-hmm. say, hey, do you want to vent? Do you want to just vent? Do you also want ideas? I'm here for anything you want. And then mm-hmm. back off and let her answer it. And don't don't say like, do you want to vent? Or do you want some really great ideas? Like try <laughs> to be agnostic. Like I'm here for your venting. I'm here if you want ideas, let me know. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of take a step back. And here's here's how you get really healthy. You pretend like your kid is actually your niece or nephew, mm-hmm. okay? Or your best friend's kid, mm-hmm. a kid you've seen grow up, a kid you adore, but you don't feel personally responsible for their outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's the healthier relationship. That's mm-hmm. the relationship where you can say, oh my gosh, come here, that sounds awful. Are you all right? You want some tea? Mm-hmm. Instead of, what do you mean you're failing chemistry? We worked so hard on that. We have to get, like, we, 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 you know, right. The parent is way too invested. Like the, mm-hmm. it's traveling down the leash, right? Mm-hmm. All of that. I need you to succeed at that. Mm-hmm. And I'm over invested in that outcome. Try to be the auntie or uncle. Mm-hmm. Try to be the, the best friend, mm-hmm. uh, not the best friend of your kid, but like pretend like they're your best friend's right. kid. Absolutely. It's the healthier psychological distance. Mm-hmm. For me, part of what really resonates with that is it also strips away the entitlement that sometimes we can have as parents. I remember I have a really wonderful friend, Rose, and she was talking about her relationship with her own son. And she's a bit farther along the path than I am in terms of parenting and age and everything. And she said at one point, you know, my son doesn't owe me anything. And she was talking about her own experience of him going out and living his life. And I remember where we were when she said that, just that idea of, Oh, my kid doesn't owe me any, you know, I mean, like respect, honoring, just basic human values. But that whole experience of as a parent, exactly like you're saying, I think it comes from a place of fear. And then it can have this smell of narcissism or a smell of imposed perfectionism. Also the control, which we know we go to when we feel scared or out of control. And so the idea of, let me try to treat you like niece, nephew, the child of my dear friend, that perspective we can have a little bit of distance and then allows for me what that does too is allows to pull back on the entitlement I have to be so up in their grill. Yeah, I love that. Let me give you one concrete example. My son who's now 23, let's say he was 21 at the time, he was 6 months into a pandemic living with us um <clears throat> and I'm in the kitchen I get stressed in the kitchen because I like, if I'm going to make a big family dinner, I want it to be like everything comes out on time. So I'm, you don't want to be around me when I'm cooking a big family <laughs> meal, but it's like, maybe it's four 30 and then we're not having dinner until six 30. I'm just getting started. My son's in there grabbing some kind of late afternoon snack, which is fine. And he's trying to put something in the toaster oven and he turns to me, he's put it in and he goes, mom, is it three seventy five or 400? And I kind of snap at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what I said, but it was like snappish, like Sawyer. I, I don't know. I'm just, you know, like, and I turned away and I was like, Julie, what are you doing? I'm telling my mindfulness is now going like, what the fuck are you doing? And I say to myself, well, I'm stressed. I'm embarrassed. Why? Because he doesn't know the answer to the stupid question of, is it 375 or 400? Why do you suppose he is that way? Oh, because you've made him feel like everything in the kitchen has to be so precise. Oh, 
So I have that little internal dialogue, mm-hmm. I turn, uh, which takes me like nine seconds. <laughs> I turn around to my son and I say, Sawyer, first of all, I'm sorry for snapping. You know, I get tense in the kitchen. I don't know why that is, but, you know, I'm working on it. It's not you. Mm-hmm. And then, and he just starts to smile and say, thank you. And I say, look, son, here's the thing. There isn't a right answer. Whether it's 375 or 400 is something you got to figure out. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it's 375, if you put it in at 375 and it's supposed to be 400, it's going to take longer to cook. If you put it in at 400, it's supposed to be 375. You're going to smell it burning. So really the answer is pick one, observe, and then for next time you'll know. And he just lit up with such delight. He's like, thanks, mom. And, you know, my little apology was important. And and um, I felt so much better. I was like, man, I got myself out of whatever whatever embarrassment I was in. And of course, the root of the embarrassment was why doesn't my 21-year-old know this already? Why is he asking such a a mundane, simple question? How the hell is he going to be ready for the world if he's Mm -hmm. asking me questions like this? Mm -hmm. And the answer I could not deny that came back from myself was you have done this to him. Mm -hmm. You have not left him on his own enough in the kitchen such Mm -hmm. that he figured this out at 12. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and also it's so metaphorical, right? I mean, it's like, try it, observe it. You'll know more next time. I mean, that's just like, exactly. a, like life, a life lesson, lesson for life. life. Lesson. Yep, right. Exactly. Doesn't matter if it's 375 or 400. Yeah. Or even if it does matter, you still have to figure that out. It's not life or death. It's not, am I jumping off the cliff or am I not? It's not that. It's a toaster oven. Right, right. And so- Julie, I don't know if you want to speak to this at all. One of the things that I was really particularly paying attention to in your writing is when you would talk about what it was like to be you, parenting your kids, and also being an incredibly diligent, loving, doting daughter to your mother who's older and who's living with you. And you're all there in a shared home. So I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. It's um, (laughs) during the pandemic, I have less of these opportunities, but when I was traveling for work, probably every break we took, somebody would come up when I was speaking and, um, you know, during the break share something to the effect of I am drowning. I'm a parent or I'm a, aunt and uncle, or I've got all these caretaking responsibilities of younger kids. And now I'm taking care of my mother, father, mother-in-law, father-in-law, somebody. And I just think, I don't know what your experience is, but I think societally, it's something we just do not support folks around and acknowledge how trying that can be and how exhausting that can be and how lonely that can be. Obviously, you know, best case scenario, it's meaningful and it's beautiful and it's gratifying. And also, I just think caretaking generally, we don't acknowledge some of the what can be overwhelm or vicarious trauma. And I really think we don't acknowledge what it's like to have these younger responsibilities and then responsibility for somebody we love who's older. Well, thanks for framing it like that. Um, the first thing I want to say is my mother graciously went in on a house with me and my partner 22 years ago to try to get our kids to the best public schools. Mm. You know, she she went in halvesies with us. So we are co-owners of this home. We didn't mm-hmm. invite her to live with us. We didn't get taken in by her. We mm-hmm. 
it's important for all three of us to state that repeatedly. We all are equals in this. Mm-hmm. And um, that's number one. Number two, it came with the obvious upsides, free, skilled, loving childcare at the drop of a hat, mm. which allowed me and my partner to get away when we needed to, to keep restoring and refurbishing our marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the obvious upsides And then some really hellacious downsides, Mm -hmm. no boundaries, Mm -hmm. no privacy for sex or arguing, um, no uh, clear rules on who's in charge when we don't all three agree. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother was raised in a very gendered time. So she has a sense of head of the table, head of the household, uh, which might be my, my partner, my husband but he doesn't see it that way. I don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. We are 50, 50 partners and everything. So my mother would often defer to my husband on things, which drove me nuts. Mm. You know, like, well, what does he think about this? Like, excuse me. Like, first of all, (laughs) do you think I haven't consulted my partner? And he's not like the decider, like we're right. And so things like that would creep in all the time Mm -hmm. and um, disagreements about how to raise or discipline the kids um, I didn't feel like I had an agency in my own house, even though I was the breadwinner mm-hmm. um, of the three of us. Uh, I had the big full-time job mm-hmm. uh, making more than my parents ever had, you know, like, and sure. it's like, where am I? And I think it's not a coincidence that my first book is all about how parents can undermine agency. Mm-hmm. And I was living it as an adult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so, you know, it's, my my and now my mother's 83 and you know she's having her you know occasional health challenges she's Mm. she's largely quite with it quite healthy which is amazing but if life goes as life often does you know we will be in the role of of caretaker and i'm watching those shifts taking place as we're sort of launching kid number one while kid number two is largely launched you know my Mm -hmm. my mother's needs are are becoming um more regular and yeah. I have a week, a daily coffee with her every weekday morning mm. um, to try to make sure that I am spending a good hour with her so that mm. whether it's just chit chat or human connection or problem solving or what have you, like mm-hmm. I'm showing up. And that's a huge part of my day. If you think about yeah. it, I'm spending an hour with her and I don't spend an hour with my kid or with my partner yeah. um, often. So that's a huge commitment. Yeah. And, um, you know, it is. Yeah, I'm going to write about it. I was going to write about it with her, but we have found it's just really challenging to to try to present both sides of that coin um, <laughs> through one narrative voice. Um, mm-hmm. And so I am interested. I'm curious about how to do it well, how to do it with grace. My advice to anybody contemplating three generations, uh, you know, contemplating your elderly or older parents kind of conjoining their lives with you, boundaries. Mm-hmm. Have conversations about who needs what. Everybody matters. Have a weekly conversation where you check in and you press people to communicate. Mm-hmm. My mother is British. She came from a stiff upper lip culture. You don't have feelings. You certainly don't talk about them. If you do have feelings, you just mm-hmm. get on with it. And she's proud of that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's really hard to live with someone who's like that because mm-hmm. their feelings come out passive aggressively. Right. And and then it all festers and you know, whatnot. So that's the work we've been doing. I'm, I'm the California daughter of a British mother <laughs> trying to help her come to in touch with her feelings so that we uh-huh. can all get along better. And to her credit, even at her advanced age, she is very interested in that learning and growth that's available. I'm of course, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say I'm blameless or 
have shoulder right. none of the yeah. responsibility. We we each shoulder it half and half. Mm-hmm. But I'm the one who's the younger generation who's been trained and taught and has worked at active listening and nonviolent communication. Right. And so I'm often the facilitator of the conversation where I am also a participant, which requires some real mindfulness jujitsu. And yes. I'm proud of myself when I do it well. I'm like, damn, I need to call my coach and tell her what I just <laughs> pulled off. Uh, and yeah, so that's, uh, that's my take. I appreciate that. So second to last question, um, you are running for city council. <laughs> and it's so funny to hear anyone say that out loud. It's so new and it's so true. I am. It's oh, my Julie. decision to stay. Wow. Stay and fight rather than leave America. Mm-hmm. I have been afraid. I have been um uh, in that mindset of I'm privileged so I can take my privilege and use it to get my and my family to Canada. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have been so worried. Mm-hmm that we've been having these existential conversations and I have come back to, Nope, I root for humans. I'm not leaving. Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. leave. I got to stay and try to fight for all of us to be okay. Mm-hmm. And city council may not seem to be where the fight is, but let me tell you, local government getting the policies in our town around who can live here and who can't and why, you know, that's about as fundamental a question around America as anything, right? Why do we, why don't we have affordable housing? And so, yes, I, I I cut off your question. I'm sorry. Um, oh I, no, I, I just am was running. Gonna, I really I am running, you. and that's why. Yeah, I'm trying to be of use. I'm trying to serve my town. I'm a progressive liberal Democrat, and we are um, currently governed by people who are, you know, not in my backyard types. Like, mm-hmm. nope, we don't need to build that much housing. We don't need those people. Um, I disagree with them, and right. I'm planning yeah. to say so. So if anybody wants to support you in that race for city council, how do they do it? And then also we'll put a link to this in the notes, but everyone can find your tremendous writing, your wonderful new Ted course, all of that's on your website. Right? Absolutely. Yep. It's okay. all on my website, which is julielithcotthames.com. That's my full name without the hyphen.com. Uh, specifically, the campaign is julieforpaloalto.com. But if you can't remember that, just... Google me, go to my website, and okay. all of it will flow out of that place. Yes. Okay. Great. Perfect. And and it'll be clear there how people can either donate or volunteer or get involved. Indeed. Okay. That website doesn't exist as I'm telling you this because the campaign <laughs> is that new. Okay. But by the time this airs, yeah, I should have a website. Awesome. Um, yeah. Look, go to, if, you, if you are interested in volunteering, email me, Julie for Palo Alto at gmail.com. That's okay. the campaign email, Julie for Palo Alto at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. I will tell you how to donate. Um, I'm taking small donations and capping, voluntarily capping donations, even though I'm not required to, because I just don't think money should buy election outcomes. Mm. So um, I'd love a lot of small donations. And if you vibe with me, if you like what I'm about, you know, want to get behind a local candidate here in Silicon Valley, uh, please definitely reach out, Julie for Palo Alto at gmail.com. That's wonderful. Last question. We always try to leave listeners with a, as concrete of strategies for themselves as possible. So can you share with us anything you're willing to kind of intimate window into your life, three non-negotiable strategies that you employ that help you get out of bed in the morning, get through your day and continue to be who you are in the world? 
Uh, three. It's like I have 89,000 or one. Okay, so let me try. Um, look, I have a life partner, Dan. I've alluded to him a few times. He's my ride or die. I met him when he was 19 and I was 20. We've done the work to stay in love and it takes effort. Mm-hmm. And we have a gratitude practice with each other. This little framed statement in our bathroom that says, I love you because blank line. And it's framed behind glass. So you can write on it and dry erase and wipe it off and write again and so on. And we've exchanged that statement over a thousand times. Mm-hmm. We thank each other for the profound. I thank you. You know, I, I love you because you came home after a fight. Or I love you because of how you treat my mother. Or I love you because of how you look in those jeans. Damn, you know, like all of it goes there. <laughs> And it's our way of making sure that when life gets crazy, we still are saying, you matter, I see you. Hmm. And to anyone in a relationship with another human, you know, your lover, your ride or die, these things must be said every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the New York Times crossword puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's keeping my brain agile and nimble. I compete with my partner. He's not competitive, so he doesn't know that I'm comp- He does know because I tell him, but he doesn't care whether he wins or loses. I care. And we do that thing and it's fun and it's, it's balanced for me. It's like, I want to be sure I'm doing that puzzle. I love puzzles. I love play. And, um, ah, what's the third thing? Um, I try to treat everyone I come across as if they are a gift from the universe, Mm. giving me an opportunity to be a better person every time strangers on the street, strangers in a store, strangers offering me, you know, handing me my coffee at the coffee shop, my husband, my mother, my child, my neighbor. I try, but often fail, but I do try to show up with grace and patience and kindness with my fellow humans. Human to human kindness is what will save us. And boy, are we in need of a massive leveling up in that regard. Julie, you've allowed me to laugh, cry, and I felt chills multiple times during this. And that might not seem like a lot, but I it have is. been so oh numb for <laughs> oh. just day after day after day, given everything going on in the world right now. So I, love that, um, Laura. I, I really, love that. really appreciate getting to have this conversation with you. Hey, you're creating a great space here. So I'm honored to be invited to sit with you and be with you and Here's what I want to just say, because you just said you've had some feelings, laughing, crying, tingling. Your listeners may have felt a thing or two because of what you said or what I said. And to the listeners, I want to say, if anything came up for you, interrogate that. Take that out into your evening, into your weekend, into your next month. What came up for you as Laura and I spoke is valid. It's a message from you that this is something that matters to you. So take that forward, whatever it is. Indeed. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm truly grateful. And you've given our listeners such a gift. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to everyone who spent their time with us. That's a gift too. Appreciate it. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie Burroughs-White. Thank you for downloading and subscribing. And as always, please give us a holler with any questions or suggestions. 
We can be found at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. There you can find both an email and phone number where you can ask your questions of our upcoming guests. I am grateful you joined us. Please remember, however your overwhelm is feeling today, you're not alone. You're in good company, and I look forward to being with you here on Future Tripping again next week. 